sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the Politics Guys, Ken. It's great to be back again. Well, it's been a while for the two of us, and that's that's all on me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you're feeling better. And I actually had fun doing it with Michael a few weeks ago when you couldn't make it, but I certainly am glad to be back with you, Trey. Well, I would have much rather been with you than having an eighth <laughs> surgery. But... Yeah. <laughs> That's a low bar. Um, But yeah, so (laughs) now what Ken and I are going to get to on this show this week, though, is we're going to have some clarification about what went down last week with COVID and Kristen and myself. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the studies going on there. Then we're going to move in, Ken, to the Democrats compromise voting rights bill. Um, We're going to talk about uh, Biden's uh, joint deal with the United Kingdom and Australia. Uh, We're going to talk about the Witter Costa. Costa book, I can speak, uh, on Trump coming out this, uh, on called Peril. Uh, we're going to maybe get to ga- uh, Gavin Newsom and the recall election out in California. Uh, less likely, but we might get to the uh, Pennsylvania Senate authorizing subpoenas of voters in an upcoming election probe. Uh, and then we've got a few more stories that will almost undoubtedly uh, be on the bonus show. Anything we don't get to, of course, on the main show will be part of the bonus show, which will be available as as soon as you can listen to this. Uh, so, but before we jump in to today's show, we're going to have just pause for a moment to have a few words from our sponsors. Well, Ken, I know that you listened to last week's show where I got to kind of be the third host in a Mike Kristen show. Um, and you know, as we were talking about before the break, I've had health issues for the last 15 months, but it was so it was a lot of fun to kind of get to jump into last, last week's show. Uh, but things got a little bit potentially weird in that <laughs> in that episode early on. Uh, and, and part of that was when I was taken aback when Kristen claimed that the COVID-19 vaccine was not a, in her words, a prophylactic. Uh, and, and that further, it wasn't even intended to be one. Now, a prophylactic is a medicine designed to prevent disease instead of cure or mitigate the symptoms of the disease. So I did something I don't often do on a show, and it it sometimes can be a little awkward, but I have occasionally, and and I did this on the last show, I called that claim outright false. Um, And we didn't really get to get much deeper into it than that. And in part, that was because none of the hosts really had that on our radar for our notes. Uh, So for me, I do extensive research for the shows that we're doing on the topics so that I'll have evidence in hand and in mind. And I know sometimes Ken and I will even do that ongoing. We'll say like, wait, we don't quite know. Well, we just weren't quite in the position uh, to do that. And so I wasn't ready. I know that Kristen wasn't ready to bring all of that to the forefront and the manner in which the politics guys uh, is intended. And so I wanted to kind of start the show off, Ken, uh, kind of summing up what Kristen was arguing and uh, kind of laying out why I I, I continue to stand behind uh, the claim that that is false. Uh, I think a lot of what Kristen was getting to when we posted about this on Facebook is that there is a, a study, a forthcoming study that was commented on by the science, uh, which is a prestigious uh, outlet and does blogs on 
uh, upcoming studies. And one of the up for, a forthcoming study that comes out of Israel is on potentially the advantages of natural immunity on preventing reinfection in comparison to the vaccine. Now, something to keep in mind, this study is still not out. So, you know, we don't know what the peer review process will look like when this is done. That's part of the scientific process. But we can look at the, 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 the data that is available. And we can say that from the data that's available, uh, the forthcoming article uh, from Science is not making the case that was claimed last week that vaccines don't decrease the likelihood of catching COVID. It does. Uh, but rather, the question that was coming at, at issue in this article was it might do so at a slightly lesser percentage than natural immunity. So to be clear, even in the study of the 32,000 individuals who were analyzed, there were only eight hospitalizations for those individuals because they were vaccinated. And there were only 238 breakthrough infections, meaning individuals out of those 32,000 uh, two-shot vaccinated individuals who then had a breakthrough case, i.e. still were infected. What that means is, is that for their study, less than 1.5% of those who received both vaccines then went on to have a case of COVID. Now, for the 16,000 people with natural immunity, meaning that they were infected uh, before having a vaccine or never having a vaccine, there were only 19 second, i.e. reinfections. So the number is smaller, and the study is showing that for the vaccinated, only a 1.5% infection rate. The takeaway here is, is that's really phenomenally good news uh, for the vaccinated. And even more importantly in the same study, again forthcoming, there were no deaths for those with the vaccine. No deaths. That's a, that's a really important number to latch onto. It's also important to note that in other studies, some of which I was attempting to mention last week, uh, but that I didn't have my fingers on, that are already out, meaning that these have been published and gone through the process, the evidence suggests in some of these that the vac vaccinations may provide a better immunity than natural immunity as a pure, again, percentage to percentage. It doesn't mean that it neither is providing one. The one that I'd like to point to out of Kentucky comes from a CDC study, which shows that those without the vaccine who contracted the virus again were 2.34 times more likely to contract it again than those without the vaccine. So here's the deal. The science, as I argued in last week's episode, is ongoing. And we're looking at the research as it's unfolding. And that's something I think a lot of people don't normally do. That's what people like myself uh, and Michael and Ken do, but that's what, that's what we do. But here's the consistent picture that's being painted so far. And I think listeners should take this away. One, even if the evidence from the forthcoming article is correct to the entire population of people, which it might be, the slightly better reinfection rates for those with naturalized immunity does not mean that the vaccine is ineffective at preventing infection. I'm going to say that again. It does not mean that the vaccine is ineffective at preventing infection. Secondly, the benefits of the vaccine include not only preventing the infection, but also, as the evidence is clear, a lack of hospitalization, long COVID, and maybe most importantly of all, death. In the FDA's approval, at least in the first six to nine months, 
people with the vaccine are 94% less likely to contract COVID. Now, there's, of course, other variables coming in as we think about the Delta variable. But so far, this is still the best evidence that we have. Uh, the, the, one of the bigger items is about when and how we should need a booster. And that's new territory. The FDA argued this week, maybe not. But other voices have said yes, including work done potentially by a bias source, but Moderna. So, Ken, would you like to, to weigh in on, I know you listened, what happened yeah. or anything I'm saying here? Yeah, well, of course, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I, I I might emphasize a few things slightly differently than what you did. I, I think when, when when I listened last week, it seemed to me that the, the category error that Kristen was making was that she was conflating the population of people who have natural immunity with the population of people who are unvaccinated. She was treating those as though that's the same population, but those are very different populations. Um, someone only has natural immunity if they've already recovered from being infected with COVID. Um, now, it may be the case that people who've um, already recovered from being infected with COVID um, get a fair amount of natural immunity that way, but it's not a good strategy to say, well, okay, well, then I'll just go ahead and get COVID and then I'll get natural immunity after that. Because for one thing, 630,000 Americans, which is one out of every 500 Americans, um, when they got COVID, they died. They didn't recover from it. Um, and, and that's 4.7 million people worldwide now. 4.7 million people on Earth who've had COVID have just died and not, and not recovered from it. So, so to develop natural immunity by getting COVID is an extremely high-risk strategy. And of course, not just for the individual, but it, it keeps spreading the disease to everybody else. Um, now, on the other hand, if you, if you compare the the general population of, of people who are vaccinated to the general population of people who are unvaccinated, instead of focusing on this like small subset uh, of the unvaccinated who've already recovered from COVID, um, then the, then the, the disparities are very very stark. And there, there's a great study. Um, it's not even it's not just a study. It's a study of studies because one problem with all these studies is that everything's unfolding so quickly that you know people will study one population here or one population there, and it, it's harder to put it all together and and think about the, you know the, the aggregate of all these studies. But but that is what was done by the Centers for Disease Control this week. Um, they they looked at 13 studies and aggregated all the data, and they published that online. And all our all our listeners can find it online, and we'll we, I think we'll put it up on the Discord site and elsewhere, maybe that maybe the regular website. Um, but in today's um, uh, in today's edition, the September seventeenth edition of the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is the the principal scientific uh, publication of of the CDC. Um, they aggregate the, the studies across 13 American cities, um, all cases from April 4th to July 17th of this year, and just ca count up, you know, how many how many people who were vaccinated got infected, how many got hospitalized, how many died, how many people who were unvaccinated got infected, how many how many were hospitalized, how many died, and and the the the, the big takeaway is that people who um, are um, unvaccinated are five times more likely to be infected, 10 times more likely to be hospitalized, and 11 times more likely to die uh, than, than people who have been vaccinated. And I think that's the really important bottom line number. I agree. And this is an example, I think, of where, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about the show and the politics guys, 
uh, and, and, and we're thinking about the ways in which we debate and argue. What we mean is, and can we've used this a lot, right? We can, ha- we can draw different conclusions about the best evidence that's available, but we don't, we can't exactly create our own evidence, <laughs> right? Right. And, and I think what has happened in the United States and elsewhere to some extent is that COVID has become a political litmus test. And, it, and, and while it may also be that none of that litmus test has any bearing on what is or is not the best evidence that's, that, that's coming out. Uh, now, I know that, that, you know, if you think that all of this is just baloney and malarkey, uh, you know, this is all just some grand, uh, grand conspiracy, then this show is probably not, the, the, not going to appeal to you all the time uh, <laughs> because – the premise here is is that there are things that we can know, and then in fact, uh, through rational debate, we could come out and recognize what is or is not a conspiracy theory. Um, but yeah, I mean that maybe that's going a little far afield. I'm not sure. Yeah, and um, maybe one very slight um, uh, corrective. Um, although I totally agree with the tenor of everything you said, um, you were quite right when you noted that in the small study that had been reported on in Science uh, Blog about uh, natural immunity. Nobody who was vaccinated um, died. Now, in this big study I was talking about that's on the CDC website, there there have been um, 616 Americans who were fully vaccinated um, and who nonetheless died of COVID this year. So so it's not as the number is not zero, but that's that's, you know, in the. Um, entire um, uh, population uh, of, of more than a million people um, who've, who've had COVID in the 13 cities uh, that, were, that were studied. Exactly. And, and, and again, that's why it's important to think about what you're talking there about the meta-analysis uh, as opposed to any one particular individualized sample, uh, because, yeah, different samples will produce different mean variation on a population. And uh, yeah, so for that study, nobody had died. Uh, that doesn't mean that nobody in any particular sample has died. Obviously, that that rate is lower than what it would be if you were unvaccinated. And I think that's what we're trying to get at here. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, really astronomically lower. Yes. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's hard to it's really kind of hard to understand how big of a deal that is. Right. Um, so I agree. I agree, Ken. But, but I know it's always like a talking point for the anti-vax people to say, well, there are people, there have actually been hundreds of people who've been fully vaccinated and still got COVID and still died. Um, and that's true. But but there's, there's millions of people who, who weren't vaccinated and who died. Well, and again, that's an example of the failure of... And in this case, you know, herd immunity isn't possible for something potentially like COVID. But even if it was, we don't we have never reached the numbers that we would need to have that. And so as a result, uh, just like with other vaccines, you there are people who will die of the thing for which they're being vaccinated against unless you can eradicate it uh, uh, by getting at the entire population, which is something that has simply not happened or even been a possibility for with COVID. Yeah. But, well, Ken, I think what we should do is uh, uh, move forward and take a look at the, uh, uh, the announcement from Biden of a joint deal with the United Kingdom and Australia, uh, potentially, to counter China. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we just take a quick break with our sponsors? Well, Ken... On Wednesday, Biden, flanked digitally by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, announced 
AUKUS. <laughs> uh, even as Biden noted, you know, an awkward acronym that, that means a lot. Um, but what, what is this AUKUS? Uh, it's a working group to share advanced technologies with the United Kingdom and Australia, uh, and in what many reporters and pundits are labeling a counter to China, although it was not explicitly so. What's going to happen is over the next 18 months, this working group is going to decide how to best deliver technology traditionally shared only with the United Kingdom. Australia, which does not have any nuclear weapons and has agreed in a 2010 uh, uh, treaty not to enrich nuclear materials sent to it by the United States, using nuclear sums would obviously be a change in policy. This is a shift sending Australia kind of materials that they wouldn't normally have used. A senior official said of this, quote, this technology is extremely sensitive. This is frankly an exception to our policy in many respects. I do not anticipate that this will be undertaken in other circumstances going forward, end quote. On the European side, outlets have been relatively scathing of AUKUS. The Guardian, in its words, notes, quote, that AUKUS deal has left the French political class seething at Joe Biden's Trump unilateralism, Australian two-facedness, and the usual British perfidy. Now, that's an interesting quote to me. Now, part of this anger stems over the fact that Australia is no longer going to be buying French-built submarines. As a matter of fact, French foreign minister of France said he felt, quote, stabbed in the back, end quote, over the unacceptable, end quote, deal. So the term in Europe from official after official is Trump unilateralism is back in China. Or maybe this is just the pragmatic necessity that we need to have Australia be part of a team to be able to keep China in line. What do you think about all of this, Ken? You know, there, there's so many moving parts to think about with this this news story. Um, and by the way, breaking news, while you were reading it, um, France actually recalled its ambassadors um, from the U.S. and from Australia. They recalled them. Yeah, that's they, a they, huge they move. Yeah, that's a huge move. Yeah, that happened just now while you were talking um, to protest the the submarine deal. Um, so, I, with 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 an extremely negative reaction from Europe, it, it seems to me easier to talk about the, that aspect of it, the the, the our relations um, with 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 the UK and with Europe, and what this might mean for that, um, than, than to really think about it in terms of. Um, the, the the military aspects with respect to China, because to me at least, and I, I'd be interested to see what you think about this, but I, I feel like the main significance uh, militarily uh, of of how much we are um, working with with countries in the Pacific Rim to sort of arm them up, you know, it seems like that mainly would be focused on on protecting places like Taiwan, but it's it's actually still kind of unfathomable for me to really think that there'd be a hot war between the U.S. and China um, over over Taiwan. I, I just I, it just seems like that would be apocalyptic if, if that happened. And I, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't, but I don't know what you think about that. Well, I have long said that I don't think that's likely. You know, we've talked about that on the show. However, I, I have to admit that when you see multiple administrations from now multiple parties be clearly, I think, taking some uh, direction in that way, it does at least give me pause to ask, 
well, what is what is there? You know, yeah. is there something that's floating around in national security uh, uh, hands? Uh, I mean, of course, you know, we're not privy to that kind of stuff. Is, is there something floating around that 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 is that is making a Biden administration? take kind of a, a potentially more unilateral i mean maybe there is maybe there isn't yeah you know and, and i'm well, right you know, I, but it, I, it's I, weird I it I, makes me it makes me yeah. when two parties do the same thing back to back it makes yeah. me wonder what's happening that i can't see well i mean i think we can see some things that are going on right so the the chi- china has been very aggressive towards hong kong in the last couple of years and and greatly um expanded its its power and influence there including to the point of violating a number of um human rights and democracy oriented provisions of the the treaty from when um the uk pulled out of hong kong and it's 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 um you know, it's an affront to the West and it's an affront to the people of Hong Kong. And, and, and so I feel like that, that kind of thing, China looks very emboldened and it makes the, the, the West want to kind of, you know, think of ways to stand up against that kind of thing. But yet, you know, we're not actually dropping bombs on China because of what they're doing in Hong Kong. And in the end, I think even if they completely succeed in, you know, with respect to Hong Kong in just incorporating it into the People's Republic of China and taking away everything that was unique about it, I, I still don't see that we'd be dropping bombs on on, on uh, China about that. And but I don't... You know, and I agree with you about that, which is why I pause for a second and ask then what would be... like. What might be floating around then? <laughs> well, I figure it's Taiwan, right? That they're thinking that, um, you know, maybe China is succeeding in its objectives in Hong Kong and it's making it think that it could succeed in similar objectives in, in Taiwan. And I suppose, you know, from this distance out, when nobody's yet talking publicly about dropping bombs, um, you know, the, the Pentagon is saying, you know, China mm-hmm. China's going to mess around with, with Taiwan and we need to, you know, be prepared for that. But to me, I just still wonder, yeah, but what's the end game. I just, I just don't yeah. know that there's a military end game there. You know, I, I agree that all that's coming, but um, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to have a nuclear war with the the the, the most populous. Is, is China the most populous? Or is India the most populous? India. Okay, so the second most populous country on earth, the 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 great rising superpower on earth, like it's not it's not going to be good for either country um, if if, it's, if this if these disputes have to be resolved uh, militarily, um, and and I feel like um, you know it, it probably would be better actually to just lose Hong Kong and Taiwan than to actually get into a military uh, hot war uh, against China. So that's the part I really don't quite um, get about, you know, this saber rattling with China. Well, and to launch from there, one of the things that I wonder is to suggest, let's assume that there isn't anything we're not privy to, right? There, There's not some you know, potential moves that we, we, we can't see from our, our position. I wonder if this won't end up being studied uh, by especially international relations and economists in the future to say, you know, one longstanding and relatively well-backed empirical theory says that the more trade connections that you have between countries, the less likely you are to have military engagement. In other words, and you can use that to leverage those deals. And I wonder that if in this case, we're not going to see perhaps um, President um, Obama is not being the one who maybe kind of 
it was the most right on this. If you recall, his goal at the end of his administration was to enter into a broader set of uh, relationships, trading relationships in Asia. Yeah, and this PTT. gets shot down. And yeah. I'm, you know, and again, the, the the you know that kind of pattern of evidence suggests well, when you don't have those kinds of trading relationships, you then more, move more likely to having these kinds of confrontations. And then, of course, during the Trump administration. We see this in, 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 in a major way with these kinds of standoffs and these ending of additional trade deals uh, with, uh, with China. And so this might just – I wonder if this is, in other words, just kind of an empirical – you know, in other words, we could have, uh, have uh, maybe predicted it had we just used the basic model of, of trade and interaction. I, what do you think about that, Ken? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, another, I think, I think this is similar to what you were saying, but um, if we, we, we probably are heading into an increasingly hardening cold, cold war against China, um, perhaps that could have been avoided if we had um, done things like the PTT and just um, integrated um, all the all the economies of, of the West and Asia a lot more. Um, but also, heading into a cold war with China isn't the same thing as heading into a hot war with China. We were in a cold war with the Soviet Union for decades. We did fight some some proxy wars here and there in places like 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 South Korea. Um, but we you know we managed to avoid actually a full scale hot shooting war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during that cold war. And I certainly hope we can do that again with China. That even if we're heading into a cold war with China, um, you know, really the the survival of the human race is at stake here. If we're talking about, you know, militarizing that into an actual hot war. So I, I hope that's not happening. Well, to take now, so let's kind of maybe, you know, we, we dealt with maybe the, the easier portion of it for a second. Yeah. Let's, let's take a look at the harder portion in, you know, Biden's move in terms of Europe, right? One of the yeah. promises Biden makes in terms of international policy is, is that he is, he is not going to continue uh, kind of the Trump policy. And, and what the kind of, and again, given the breaking news that you were just talking about yeah. with drawing the ambassadors, I think that it was not just rhetorical to be calling Biden Trump unilateralism yeah. from a number of outlets. Do you agree with that uh, assessment? Uh, do you agree with that so, assessment? Is this a misstep? By, yeah. by So let's take a look at it from that well, side now. Right. So, so I think the verdict's still out on that. It looks like a misstep. But here's just what I'm hoping this is all about. I have no evidence that this is what it's all about. But if, if it's if it's not a misstep, one thing I'm thinking is, um, you know, I know that Biden, who is um, uh, Irish American, um, is interested in um, the, the, what's now becoming the, the the Irish question. There's a great deal of skirmishing between the EU and the UK uh, about the status of um, North Ireland and, and the Brexit protocols that relate to North Ireland. Because and that creates I, a hard border as a reminder yeah. for listeners, right? So when you were all part of the EU, that what was a hard border became a soft border and now would have to transfer back to well, being a hard border. It's not supposed to transfer back to being a hard border because the, the Brexit agreement that was actually negotiated with the EU, with UK and EU, moves that hard border um, out into the Irish Sea rather than putting it on the island of Ireland. So it actually... Oh, I just meant that that was yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. things they were There's negotiating things, yeah. about. But, yes, but, yeah. But, yeah, but right right now, the UK and the um, uh, Northern Ireland are starting to go ballistic about the agreement that they agreed to, right? That they that, that Because it effectively puts Northern Ireland um, on the EU side of the border rather than the UK side of the border. It, 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 so since, ever since Brexit, um, the, the UK border 
has has had Northern Ireland on the other side of it, even though even though uh, Northern Ireland thinks of itself as still part of the UK, and the UK thinks of Northern Ireland as still part of the UK, and so they've been really demanding that um, uh, that that they be um, uh, released from that agreement, and that they essentially get back to the days where there's no border anywhere, no border between um, Britain, between England and Northern Ireland, and also no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So no border at all with the UK. So they, they want to get back to, to free movement of, of goods, uh, but yet not not have to actually be a member of the um, uh, EU. Right. And, and, and that's totally unacceptable to the EU. And I do believe that Biden is planning to come down pretty hard on the side of the EU there. And so putting it in that context, what I'm hoping is he's trying to do something that's very um, pro, pro-UK and seemingly anti-France, um, you know, in this case, um, because it's going to counterbalance a move that he's about to make, you know, which will go the other way. You know, and and I think he's going to come very much down on the EU side on on any question related to um, uh, um, renegotiating the the Irish Protocol, which is which is a very contentious issue right now in that part of the world. So I think he's actually trying to um, chart a course where you know the U.S. looks like an honest broker that sometimes you know does things that are in the interest of the EU and sometimes does things that are interest of the UK, just depending on what's in the the interest of the U.S. and of, of the the world at large, and um, and so in that sense, I, I hope this is part of that context. But if if it's just um, if he's just you know aggravating France and and I think France was if I if I have this right and I might not, but I, I think France was already in a contract to sell the same nuclear submarines to. Um, Australia. Similar, so the uh, Similar. Compa- yeah. com- comparable might be the best way to put that. Yeah, yeah, co- comparable, right? And so, um, and I guess the as as I I don't I don't have a great understanding of the technology, but my 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 understanding of the the advantage of all these nuclear submarines over conventional submarines is partly that they can go a lot faster, but also partly that they never ever need to be recharged. They can always generate all their own charge, so they can they don't ever they have to be recharged, and they have nearly indefinite underwater time. Yeah, they could just stay down forever, so nobody knows where they are. But but I think um, I think France had that technology. France is certainly a nuclear country, and uh, they were. Well, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we should mention that. I mean, the, the re- what makes the um, you might the listener might be asking, well, then why why is this so unique between the United Kingdom and Australia? Because Australia is not a, a place with uh, a nuclear power. The same uh, mechanisms, the same science that you use, the same technology, I should say, that you use to have a nuclear sub is the same thing that you use to make a bomb, right? So there's no way to separate those two. So you can say, well, I'm not going to use it this way. But once you have that technology, potentially, you have both technologies. That's why that's always been a, a sticking point for the United States in doing these kinds of sub transfers, as I understand it, Ken. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Australia, I think, made very clear that they they aren't planning to weaponize. Um, I mean, they'll, they'll have conventional weapons on these subs, but they're they're not going to weaponize the nuclear aspect of the subs right. and have nuclear weapons on the subs. Which is important to say a nuclear submarine doesn't necessarily mean a submarine with an ICBM, for example. Right. You know, it, or, uh, not excuse me, not an ICBM, but, but a, uh, a nuclear warhead. Yeah, but it it it, it does put the. Um, I mean, there has to be a, a EU political component of Biden's decision here because it it can't just be about security. Because I I think the security benefits to Australia would have been similar if they got the French subs than if they got the um, American subs. So I don't. Yeah, I, I do think he was you know purposely wanting to align himself 
with the UK and against France on this. And I'm just hoping that that's playing into the fact that he's about to do do the opposite um, on, on the Irish question, which may actually be, be the more important question to both um, the UK and France um, than, than, than even this uh, Australian submarine question is. Now, the other possibility, and I had been thinking about this before the show, are you familiar with uh, Churchill's, the, the English people, the the English-speaking people of the yeah. world. Yeah, the, and the special relationship and all that, yeah. I mean, the other possibility is that there's there's a larger Churchillian truth here, which is that perhaps Biden and others are more comfortable working with, you know, in maybe this now larger sense of the English-speaking people, especially if, you're con- if you have even a, a modicum of assuming that you have a threat from China. Yeah, I, I, that could be, but I, I would wonder, I mean, I'm not sure I fully understand why, um, if the only question is who are the Australians going to get these nuclear submarines from, is it going to be us or is it going to be France? Um, we could still have security coordination with the Australians to a great extent. And I think we, we do have a lot of security coordination with the Australians to a great extent. So I don't, I don't well, know how much the further technology interaction, yeah. right? So, I mean, because obviously the subs are just one of a number of technologies, part of uh, uh, AUKUS or yeah. uh, the AUKUS, right? So, you know, that's the one we've been, I, I kind of gravitated to because of its unique nature, but it's not the only one. So, I mean, part of the possibility is, is you're saying, well, I want to have this connection. I'm going to trust this kind of broad coalition that we've normally had more often. Hey, I know that the, I know that the, if we do this, this kind of makes the sub deal with France, not a big deal, but I want all these other technologies to be with Australia as well. That would be my, that would be the possibility yeah. for that one. I mean, again, I don't have enough data to say that for yeah. sure, but. Yeah, I, I can't refute it, but it does seem to me to be possible that, that we would have been able to transfer other kinds of technologies to um, Australia that um, they weren't already in a contract to buy, buy from yeah. France. So, yeah. well, and, that, and that goes back to, is like, is this just another misstep? by the Biden administration in the same realm as the Afghan pullout. In other words, the right idea, but the, the, the disastrously wrong, uh, potentially uh, uh, pragmatic uh, details. Yeah, it could be. Um, another thought that just occurred to me, maybe maybe it is partly about messaging to China and, and maybe um, China has the idea that France is not so bellicose, right? And so yeah. by, by, by Biden saying, well, we're cutting France out. We're working with fellow uh, bellicose countries like the UK and <laughs> Australia. You know that that's um, that that's gonna that's sending a message that um, you know to 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 China like we we mean business. But again, Listen, English-speaking people, we will shoot you. Listen, those yeah, French, yeah, they're not yeah, going to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, they're but... not going to do that. They they oppose all the wars. You know, and, and I, 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 so so there what's might the, be something. What's the old like, joke? The French have only ever won a war against themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I but I but I, I still that would I would still probably agree with you that even if that's what it is i'd characterize that as a misstep because i i don't i don't think that um that kind of tit-for-tat saber rattling is is productive if that if that's what this is so i don't i don't yeah i I still would probably have to agree with your characterization that this is a misstep i like that because that's that's a kind of a different take on a story than we normally get to do and and we had like maybe the first time ever on the politics guys like breaking news right yeah breaking news it Uh, literally got reported i was really surprised that you didn't do that like had i seen that pop up i i would (laughs) have 
totally <laughs> taken advantage and said, this just in, Ken. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had a recording of one of those, like like the sound of a teletype or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I could have sang it. <laughs> well, yeah. maybe we'll get more breaking news. Maybe we won't. Yeah. But uh, here after uh, a brief break for some of our sponsors, uh, Ken and I are going to move on to talking about the Democrats' compromise voting rights bill. So just a brief break from our sponsors. Well, Ken, on Thursday, Senate Democrats introduced a pared-down voting bill, seemingly with supports on both wings of the Democratic Party, to expand voter access. Now, some of the big items in this bill would be to make Election Day a public holiday, have same-day voter registration at all polling places by 2024, and ensure at least 15 days of early voting in all federal elections. Now, as Axios and other political outlets have commented on, this is far less sweeping. This is a this is a counterbalance to the For the People Act, and that's something that we had actually talked about earlier in the year. Manchin, a co-sponsor of the bill, argued in the press release, quote, the right to vote is fundamental to our democracy, and the Freedom to Vote Act is a step in the right direction towards protecting that right for every American, end quote. In short, it is a less drastic way to create a national or at least basic voting standard. Now, for listeners, you might wonder why this is, you know, like, why is it interesting that we have Congress coming up with voting rights bills? Well, in the United States, U.S. elections uh, are very unique, and that's because they're federal. Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution grants states the right to set elections, times, and places even for federal elections. And so as a result, there can be and historically has been radical differences uh, between states and their voting mechanisms, access, time, and more, unless Congress steps in uh, and the ways in which they can is is governed there by the Constitution. Now, as a matter of fact, I'll tell a personal story on me in this one. When I was a kid, you know, what kid knows Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution? Or like, I just figured everybody voted, right? You, like, you vote and it has to be the same way everywhere, right? <laughs> so we, I lived in Kentucky. And so voting in Kentucky when I was a kid was fun um, because they actually were one of the earliest states to use mechanical voting. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know that? No, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they actually had these great big metal machines and, and you pulled levers on the machines to vote next to people's names. And so you would go in this like machine and there was this big curtain that was behind you. And then at the very bottom, there was this big red button that said like vote. And so once you pulled all the levers the way you wanted and you couldn't vote wrong that way. Right. So if like if you pulled one lever down, you couldn't have two. You know, it popped the other one up if it was for the same candidate. Um, so then you push that big button vote and this whole machine is like bing. And then out of the back of it came uh, your voting card that you could look at if you wanted to see. But it also mechanically tallied it. And then the, the curtain opened up. And when I was a kid, that was the coolest thing ever, right? Like I would have voted for everybody because <laughs> <laughs> um, I just thought this like, yes, I will. Maybe that's why I'm a political scientist. Who knows? I, th- I thought voting was so cool. I would have stayed there all day, <laughs> pulled the levers and pushed the button. So then, Ken, I'll show some of my ignorance. You know, I lived in Kentucky, and then for graduate school, I moved to Ohio. And now that's more your part of the world, right? And Ohio, yeah. like, you know, they're supposedly more advanced than uh, than Kentucky. But the first time I voted in Ohio, I was taken aback because I went to the voting place with a friend of mine. I didn't have a car, and she drove me. And there's like, there's nowhere to, in my mind, there was nowhere to vote. It just looked like Sunday school. There were just all these tables out in this auditorium. Yeah. I'm like, 
what? Like, where's the where's the oh, yeah. mechanism to vote? I don't understand. <laughs> and they and they give you a number two pencil and say fill in these bubbles. Well, the year I did it, I don't know if you remember this. The yeah. year I voted in Ohio, I got a, 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 I got a Crayola marker. Yeah, <laughs> I colored for president, yeah. and I'll, I'll never forget sitting there going like. I never want to hear another Kentucky joke again because I am coloring for the president, you know, for all these, yeah, for everything. But I'm coloring for president, and it, I, 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 it just it was not voting for me. I couldn't. But that's right. an example, though, of how radically different. Uh, and yeah. as a matter of fact, when I voted the next time, they had changed to like a touch screen, and I mean, they've changed so many times in Ohio that I don't even understand. But, uh, but anyway, voting can be a lot different. But so, what do you think about this more? you know, maybe more palatable version of the For the People Act? Well, I, I, I hope the Dems just stick with the For the People Act. I don't think there's any benefit to this because they're, they're not going to get a single Republican vote. And so ultimately, as before, the Dems have to decide, are they going to um, create an exception to the filibuster rule for voting rights, um, which President Obama supports, um, uh, former President Obama, um, and which I would also support, um, and then pass it with 50 votes, um, or, or are they going to, um, you know, keep trying to water it down? Don't you think uh, it's kind of out of the out of the question, though? Now, I mean, the fact that you've got this many co-sponsors on the new bill suggests well, to me that you don't even have enough yeah. Democratic votes to pass the For the People Act. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, the thing about um, yeah, yeah. So maybe that that, but they would still need they would still need to create a filibuster rule exception even to pass this one. You might you might be right that there weren't fifty votes for the For the People Act. Although when the For the People Act first came out, um, Manchin said he wasn't for it, but he said he was for the John Lewis Act, which was still a little bit more um, um, uh, had packed a little more punch than this one does. Um, so I think I think once Manchin was on board for the John Lewis, that sort of was the you were already at the threshold where all the Democrats were on board, um, but now you know I guess they they keep coming up with weaker versions to see if they can get some bipartisanship, but I, I don't think they can get there. You know, no. so I, I yeah, no. I, I think and you're right about that. Yeah. You're right. There, yeah. there, there's no Republican. I mean, if you just had if you just had a bill that said we're going to make uh, 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 the, the November's elections a national holiday, I don't think you could get a, a single Republican vote. Well, I, maybe Murkowski, but um, I, I, you could probably get one or two, but but not not ten, which is what's needed. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, so that's that's not. Um, yeah, I, so I, you know, I guess the the current um, the, the the current bill that that was just introduced, which I guess all the Dems are supporting, but so far no Republicans are supporting it. Um, it would make a. Um, it, it actually wouldn't even make an election day holiday. It wouldn't even do that. No, it, it does. Would, it does. It does. Um, it does. So I, the big items, just so you know, because I've looked through it, the 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 bill, you get um, you get an election day. Uh, it becomes a public holiday. Um, you get same day ro- voter registration as a requirement by 2024, i.e. the next presidential election. Um, and all states have to allow for at least 15 days of uh, early voting. There's some other things. That, that's Those are the big items, though. You know, the, the news report I'm looking at today... Uh, doesn't mention those. So I'm looking really? at the Washington. Yeah, I'm looking at the Washington Post, and it says, and I'm not looking at the bill. I'm just looking at the Washington Post news report. But it says, enacts an automatic voter registration system for each state. That doesn't necessarily say same day. Um, mandates 15 days of early voting. Um, sets standards for voting by mail and requires that all voters can receive an absentee ballot if they ask for one. Uh, creates federal protections. That to protect nonpartisan election workers from being uh, bullied by um, observers and protesters, requires states to use paper ballots um, 
requires uh, um, uh, st sets national standards for states to co comply with for voter ID if the states want to use voter ID, um, and and has some some very uh, outer bound limits on gerrymandering, but not very tight well, limits. Let me on give you my source as well, so that everybody you know, yeah. listeners can know. Uh, I got through to the bill on Axios, so uh, oh. AXIOS is a, a source that I use uh, regularly, uh, and on their. Um, take on the bill entitled Democrats Unveil Voting Rights Compromise Bill on September 14. Um, they, too, list uh, the big picture. The bill includes provisions to make Election Day a public holiday. Um, they go on to mention uh, same-day voter registration at all polling places by eventually 2024. Um, and you can continue to come down then um, at least 15 days of early um, voting. And then it goes on to list the items that were left out compared to the For the People Act um, and the one that they really highlight in their uh, piece uh, is restructuring the Federal Election Commission. So, I mean, that's interesting. So in, in this case, you said that was the Washington Post. And yeah. This, this is uh, Axios. Looking, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they're just choosing to emphasize different, different aspects things. of the same bill. And, and I didn't, I didn't look the at the language of the bill. You know, yeah. that, that framing effect can matter, even especially on big, big bills like this. But... Um, Okay, continue. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I, but I don't. I don't think it's going anywhere, though. I, I think even though Manchin supports this bill, and he also had supported the John Lewis bill, he still doesn't say he supports him enough to to make a new filibuster uh, ex exception. So um, that's kind of the end of the line for it because it can't. So what really do you be think the purpose is then? That that's one of the questions that I had for you. Well. Uh, you know, I, I I think different different players have different purposes here, but I think for many Democrats, the the purpose is just to you know keep watering down the bill for now to just show that that Republicans will never go for any bill, just and maybe to get some um, maybe to get some roll call votes and and put put Republicans on the record that they won't go for these bills and and keep um, in increasing what they hope will be public pressure on Congress to, to pass these bills. Now so that's that true may because be I mean this that. bill does not contain anything. I think that the average voter is going to be, you know, against. I mean, some you know some of the um, um, Trumpers, I guess, are against things like um, early voting. I think even Jay is against early voting, isn't he? I think most Republicans are kind of against you know anybody not voting for Trump, though. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, where yeah, to... <laughs> right. Um, I'm sorry, yeah. that's not yeah. universally true, but yeah. it, it sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Like it really does. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think. Um, uh, you know, I think some, some are against uniform national standards for voter ID because they, they want to be able to do things like say, well, a, a gun license counts, but a college ID doesn't count, and things like that. You know, whereas I think the, the congressional setting of uniform standards would probably either count both or neither of those two kinds of uh, ID. Um, so uh, I don't know. You know, I don't really know what basic grounds of uh, um, opposition there would be, but I mean, that could be a political strategy then, right? I mean, if, yeah, if the bill yeah. seems very reasonable and the Democrats just keep forcing votes on a bill that sounds very reasonable, then they can at least force the Republicans to keep talking about um, why they oppose voting so much, you know, and that's, and that's, I hope, I think is a conversation that's generally um, to the, to the Democrats political benefit, but I don't, but I just don't see action. Maybe some think that if they keep this up, it'll eventually put enough pressure on Manchin and Cinema that they will accept a new um, uh, filibuster rule exception. You know, so the idea would be to say to them, look, you you want to do bipartisanship. We'll water this down as much as you want if you can find some 10 Republicans that'll join. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then and then when, when they never find the 10 Republicans that'll join, then maybe that puts some pressure on Cinema and Manchin to, you know, to say, OK, I guess I guess we can't find any Republicans to join. So maybe we need to do this. 
sense, you know. Well, so and, and, maybe, maybe that's the thought. And this is also, I think it's kind of hard to understand the outcome of these kinds of, you know, as you're talking there about the advantage. And, and, and I understand, and that, that is one plausible scenario. But in, in a world in which we continue to see kind of an assault on uh, election integrity, uh, it, it, it's I was, I guess, one of the things that I found weird about the the messaging for the bill, and that's maybe in part while I was mentioning the press release from Manchin, is it's weird to me that the Democrats are not tying this to conversations about upholding elections and recognizing the election, you know, but maybe they see that as being too potentially negative. In other words, you're immediately going to turn off a segment of the population in a way that maybe this wouldn't. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, or maybe they're setting the stage for that. Like maybe maybe the the, the really public part of that um, argument um, comes a little bit later because um, right now the goal might be to at least say to Manchin and Cinema, look, we're not bashing the Republicans yet. We're, we're hoping that you can bring some of them on board. But but next year, when it's clear that that hasn't happened and we're, when we're actually in an election year, then then maybe that's the time to start talking more publicly the way that, that you're that you're talking about right now. That's true. Well, I think we should probably move on to our next and I think what might end up being our last for the main show story, which is the new word book on Costa book on Trump peril. But before we get to that, we're going to have a brief message from our sponsors. Well, Ken, one of the things that has definitely consumed the oxygen this week has been the first glimpses of peril as it becomes uh, as the excerpts from it become available. And it has generated some significant sensation, um, so much so that even President, former President Donald Trump has responded uh, to the advanced claims in the book. So there's a bunch of things we could take a look at, but I'm going to I'm going to pull out just a few that we might want to take a look at that I've had access to. Um, One portion of the book uh, is about the Joint Chief Chairman General Mark Miley, who, according to the narrative of Peril was shaken by the January 6th insurrection and was, quote, certain that Trump had gone into serious mental decline in the aftermath of the election, end quote. That's all the quotes here will be from the book Peril. Uh, so much so that Miley took, quote, extraordinary action, end quote, to make sure that procedure was followed in the use of war or nuclear weapons. He instructed officials to not take orders from anyone and that's a fascinating word to be used unless procedure was involved, i.e. meaning that he was part of the conversation. Uh, in addition to that, I think we can spend some time talking about this. The Mammoth Tome also covers uh, Vice President Mike Pence trying desperately to find ways to satisfy Trump, but not to overstep his constitutional role. Uh, in the book, the report notes that Pence called Dan Quayle, there's a name we haven't had in the news in a long time, <laughs> to see if there was any, quote, glimmer of light, legality, and constitutionality to perhaps put a pause on the certification, end quote. He would go on to say that, quote, you don't know the position I'm in, end quote. Oh, Pence, we do. I just want to point that out. Uh, <laughs> this culminates with Trump and Pence having a confrontation, another part of the book that I think we want to talk about. According to that account, Ken, uh, Trump gestures to the supporters outside. By the way, this is the, this is the Jan 6, folks. Uh, the White House calling for the election to be overturned. And he says, quote, if these people say you had the power, wouldn't you want to? 
end quote. Uh, when Pence would go on to disagree, Trump would press him forward, arguing, quote, but wouldn't it almost be cool to have that power? End quote. I don't know, Trump. Anyway, Trump would go on to eventually tell Pence, quote, no, 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 you don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this, end quote. As a matter of fact, I had that same conversation with my five-year-old the other day, um, but she didn't have access to nuclear weapons. Anyway, there's other bits of the book I got my hands on, but I thought those items are enough to at least get us started here. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, we could have talked about Ryan, uh, you know, former Speaker Ryan uh, researching narcissistic personality disorder, but I felt like that was just that we, it's just piling on at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, what do you think? So, Ken? I, yeah, let me start. But first, I, when we were talking about the voting rights, um, I forgot that I, when we were t- I was meaning when we were talking about voting rights to to wish our listeners uh, a happy Constitution Day today. Today is the uh, oh, that's um, right. Yeah, two hundred forty, two hundred thirty fourth uh, anniversary of the signing of the Constitution on. September 17th, 1787 of the ratification. So wish them that. But now back to the Woodward book. You know, nobody's read the Woodward book yet. We're just reading a lot of news reporting about it. And the um, and there's the, some, and there's some portions it, you can get your hands on that they've, yeah, they've released. Yeah, but yeah you can't that. get the whole deal. Well, uh, and, did it release? And of course, um, I don't think it released yet. Okay, continue. Sorry. Yeah. And Woodward, Woodward, as he has been doing for a long time, since, since he became famous in the time of Watergate, um, he writes these books. His style is to... Um, interview a lot of people who don't uh, agree to be um, to accept attribution and uh, and then he reports kind of omnisciently um, about a lot of conversations and things that took place uh, in private um, without telling you you know who told him about these conversations and and so there is always the you know some some aspects of like, well, the people that he's talking to uh, are the people who are going to make themselves look good and make other people look bad. Right. Which is one of the questions about Miley. By the way, the book comes out on the 21st. Yeah, on the 21st. So it's not out yet. And then and then there's also um, there's some things that even the people he's talking to may not have um, told it to him right or may not have um, known the whole picture. So I think we have to you know remember that, that it's an unusual kind of report reporting that he does where no attribution is ever, ever given. And, and it, it's, I mean, just for yeah. people who might I mean, if you've never read a Woodward book, I want to be clear, they are not generally uh, engaging. <laughs> like, yeah. like you get these really cool little moments. But they're I, this is this is going to sound horrible. They're not generally the best written work. Like if, if you're going to sit down and read something, I have many on my shelf, and I have yeah. never thought to myself, "Oh, what a what a delightful read that that was." Oh. Uh, I just you know, especially except for except for one, the one page Turner that Woodward ever wrote that you know you, you won't be able to put it down if you start uh, reading it is the the final days, which is the one about the very very post Watergate end of the Nixon administration. Now I I, I can I can understand that yes yeah it's 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 it's, he's nixon has you know completely lost his mind and and every every page of that is like oh my god (laughs) that that, that one that one is a page turner um but but all all the other ones i kind of agree but but so on on the millie stuff for instance you know it's interesting on the one hand millie probably may have been his source but i'm not even sure because there's some stuff that gets reported that you know from 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 the antitrust from the anti-trump perspective, which probably most of Woodward's readers have, uh, it makes Millie look like a real hero. And and for that reason, um, you know, a lot of people are thinking, well, Millie well, must have been way, one of the sources. But, I mean, yeah. but of course, at the same time, yeah. to have a general who's effectively saying, hey, yeah. 
I'm going to have to not allow the duly elected president to do yeah. what they're supposed to do. That's the right. part that makes me wonder if he yeah. was well, or right, not. Right. You know? Yeah, well, I don't think he was the source is what I'm about to say. Oh, okay. because I'm actually, sorry. I yeah, preempted you. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah. Because, because actually um, it, it does make him look bad in the ways that you just talked about um, and only in ways that are actually false, right? So we're, we're hearing a lot of this dialogue now. You know, first you hear the dialogue from from the the pro the, the anti-Trump people saying, "Well, this book shows that Milley saved the whole country uh, and saved us from going to war with China." And then you hear the the counter the counter argument to that: "No, no, this book shows that Milley arrogated to himself all the powers of the presidency and usurped the chain of command and took the law in his own hands and, and all this." But but all of that is based on on facts that are clearly not true and that are either being misreported in the um, uh, um, articles that are describing the Woodward book or perhaps are, are misreported uh, in, the, in the Woodward book. Um, for instance, you know, I think a lot of the reporting and maybe one of the things you were just referring to talks about um, – uh, Milley unilaterally reaching out to his Chinese uh, counterpart and warning the Chinese counterpart that, um, you know, if Trump is going to try to launch an attack against China to, um, to, 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 to distract people from the election controversy or something, or just out of a fit of peak, that um, uh, Milley himself will take it upon himself to let the Chinese counterpart know. And th th a lot of reporting has been to that extent. Now, that absolutely did not happen, right? And, and you know, the, 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 the Defense Department and, and the White House immediately said that did not happen, um, that, that everything that happened was entirely within the chain of command and under ordinary procedure, um, that every contact that there was between Milley and his Chinese counterpart was vetted um, in advance with the, the Secretary of Defense, which is who he's supposed to vet it with. He doesn't, Milley doesn't answer directly to the president in the chain of command. He answers to the Secretary of Defense, um, and he vetted every communication with the Secretary of Defense. Every one of these communications took place by video conference in rooms with 15 or more top-level personnel there, including not only military personnel, but also civilian personnel from the Defense Department and the State Department. And uh, ordinary notes were made of every one of these communications. None of this was the slightest bit secret or outside the chain of command, but but a lot of um, uh, uh, breathless reporting, you know, is sort of picking up on, you know, saying, oh, he just took all this on himself to do this, but it's it's unquestionably un untrue. Um, and, uh, um, and, and and I think the people will stop being so overheated about that soon. Um, the, the other part I think that, you know, people are thinking is controversial, that um, it's harder to know exactly mm -hmm. what's true, but I think should be less controversial than it's being made out to be with, 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 with General Milley is, um, you know, people are saying, well, he had um, told uh, the, the the various commanders who might um, be in in a position to launch missiles and things, um, you know, if the if, if 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 the president or or somebody from the White House tells you to launch a missile, um, um, check with me first. Um, now that you know, I don't know if he did it or not. I can't say whether right. that's true or false. But if but if we if we assume that that if we assume that that's true, um, unlike the business about the secret communications with China, which I think we know is not true, um, then uh, um, you know it's 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 not clear that there's anything wrongful or illegal or or, or um, uh, unconstitutional about that. It's not actually the president that has the constitutional power to decide whether to start a war with China. It's it's um, it's the Congress that has the constitutional power to. to declare war. And, and if, if the president gave an unlawful order, 
um, it would actually be the legal obligation of the military not to follow that order, uh, particularly if doing so would be a war crime, uh, which, which launching aggressive war or um, uh, attacking a civilian population would be under the U.S. War Crimes Act, not only under international law. So, so all, all of the person, military personnel would, would, would have to comply with the U.S. War Crimes Act, would, would, would be operating in a, in a situation where we're not in a declared war uh, against China. And I think it, it's completely lawful and appropriate um, that, the, um, that, 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 their, that their operational commander um, would, would tell these soldiers um, to check with him um, before they followed a, 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 an order like that. And then finally, I think it, it, it was responsible of, of uh, Milley to do that. It, it wasn't like he was making this stuff up. There was literally at the exact same time and probably known to him, you know, an effort by, by Trump um, in the Justice Department, not in the Defense Department, to entirely circumvent the ordinary chain of command and get um, look look for some low-level person in the Justice Department. He settled on this guy Jeffrey Clark to actually um, uh, um, violate the law and and try to steal the election. Um, so so the idea that Trump could have been looking for low-level Trumpers in the Pentagon who would um, do illegal things that he that that Trump asked them to do, I don't think was fanciful. He was doing that in the Justice Department. So, so I think it makes sense that um, the, 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 the commander of the Joint Chiefs of Staff would say, just, just check with me first, because you shouldn't do something that's illegal just because someone in the White House tells you to. I love that analysis. What do you think about the Pence interaction? Yeah, that one I have a harder time um, uh, wrapping my hands around it. There's a, I, again, it's hard to know what really happened because if you're talking about private conversations between Pence and uh, uh, Quayle, um, well, presumably the only people who know what they said to each other are them. Is, 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 are them, right? So I guess Woodward is telling us that he spoke to one or both of them. Um, but they also both have kind of relatively self-serving interests in spinning um, what, what they were really talking about. So I think we have to take all that with a, a grain of salt. Um, the, the one thing I would say about it is um, – it, it 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 sounded to me if we just take the Woodward accounts at face value, which I don't necessarily do, that what what Pence was kind of um, looking for was not so much that he was looking for somebody to tell him that he could do what Trump said, um, but just that he was really kind of he always knew he couldn't do what Trump said, I think, but but that he was um, just trying to keep Trump at bay a little bit, you know, or have and, a reason it, that would that would allow yeah. him to get to not suffer the yeah. wrath of Trump, maybe. Well, I think he was going to suffer it anyhow, but I think for as long as he's out there soliciting advice, you know, like, oh, I'll go ask Dan Quill what he thinks, you know, then at least at least nominally, uh, Pence is still um, uh, undecided during that period. You know, maybe, oh, maybe I'll I do this, see. maybe okay. I won't. Right. So that so that instead of him having to stand up to Trump right away, uh, which he was going to have to do, and he did it. And it's to his credit that he did it, right? And I actually, I actually give him more credit because I think, I think he always knew he was going to do it. But I think, um, you know, when when Trump first tells him to, to 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 steal the election, my sense is that his first instinct is like, okay, I got to find a way to, you know, not say yes or no, you know. Like he didn't, he didn't quite have the fortitude to say to Trump, no, I'm not going to steal the election yeah. for you. You know, he's like, oh, okay, um, well, I'll see what I can do. Let me you talk know? to some and other then, vice presidents. Yeah, 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 I'll talk to some other vice presidents. I'll see what I can do. I'll look into this. I'll try to figure out if I can do what you're saying, you know. And so that's kind of just delaying 
you know, um, having to, you know, have this, this um, ultimately the end that actually had to come, you know, where he, he did do the right thing. And I think he deserves all the credit for it. But I, I, I don't really buy the idea that, um, oh, he would, he would have done the wrong thing, except that Dan Quayle said, you know, you got to do the right thing. Like that, <laughs> that just seems a little bit. And again, between seems, the two people I, that could have been interviewed, it's probably more likely that Dan Quayle is the one that grants an interview. Yeah, yeah, and so he tells uh, Woodward, you know, what an important role he played in uh, convincing uh, uh, Pence not to steal the election. I, I think that's a very plausible way of thinking about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ken, we have actually gone long even, and we haven't covered everything. So, uh, you know, the listeners, if you uh, are excited, uh, just remember here, as soon as we're finishing this, you'll have the opportunity to take on our bonus show uh, where you're going to get a chance to listen to us talk about uh, Newsom defeating the recall election. We're going to take on uh, Pennsylvania's GOP authorizing a subpoena of voters and election probe. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the march potentially on Washington tomorrow. Uh, and, and additionally, we're going to take on a few listener questions about uh, majority and minority rules. So we got a lot of things to, to, to get, get to on the bonus show, Ken. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to say thank you guys for listening to the bonus show. I know that this is this is a, a fun. I mean, again, I wouldn't be coming back after not feeling well so quickly if, if, if it wasn't a lot of fun. And one of the ways you can help support the show, support me, make that part of the day, is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, and so, too, is going to be uh, giving us your support. By giving us your support, that's how you're going to get access to things like the bonus show and the, the great additional content that Ken and I are going to be having here in just a few minutes. Um, and this is always a lot of fun to have the kind of a full length supporters only show now available at the same time. And so again, uh, if you have some kind of financial issue that's going to make that hard for you to do, you can actually always email Mike at politicsguys.com to get access to that show as well, which is something I always think is really cool that we do. Additionally, uh, we, as uh, Ken was even talking about some of the things that we're doing in the show, we'll post on Discord. We have a Discord channel. So if you'd like to support with me or with Ken or Mike or Kristen or others, uh, you can gain access to Discord uh, by being a supporter. So if you want to become a supporter, how do I do that? Well, you can find out more of the benefits of being a supporter or actually become a supporter by heading to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again for a bonus show by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some kind of random thought you want to throw out our way, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff, and I hope you'll join us next time.